Hello, everyone. Welcome to the webinar. I am Rick Thomas, and the title of the webinar is The Doctrine of Repentance. I call this the Christian secret weapon. I want to walk through what repentance looks like in the Christian life. I am speaking of progressive sanctification. We have the privilege to be able to change, to progressively evolve into this mature image of Christ's likeness. We call that repentance. And so I've titled this webinar, The Doctrine of Repentance, and I want to give you a full presentation of what that is like. There are so many benefits to repentance. And as you think about it, you think about repentance in your life, I'm sure that you can start writing out a list of things as far as the benefits are concerned. I want to give you my top 10 list. I'm going to put them here on this slide, and I'm sure you can add to it. But here's some of the things that I think about when I think about the benefits of repentance. Number one, and not necessarily in order of priority, just just a mashup of wonderful things that happens because of repentance. Number one, I have listed here freedom from sin. How good is that? Also, removal of guilt. Number three, regret goes away. And then your conscience is clear. You have sovereign clarity. Number six, conflict resolution, maturing friendships, second chances as the slate is wiped clean. Number nine, a Christ-like future. And then finally, number 10, a Christ-like example as we get to emulate what Christ is like to our family, to our friends, and to a world who does not know our Jesus. These are just some of the benefits of repentance. And as you look at this list, again, I'm sure that you can add to it. Perhaps you would like to take a screenshot of it, make it a matter of prayer, of thanksgiving as you ponder the blessedness to be able to change, to be able to repent. This would also be a good discussion topic in a small group of friends. Let me say that for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this webinar, that I would appeal to you as soon as you can, and if you can, watch the video. You can watch all of our webinars freely on our website. We would love for you to do that. There's no cost. You don't need a username or a password. Just jump on our video page, go to the webinar section, and you can watch this as well as other webinars, and that would be great. It will be hard to reproduce this webinar in audio because it's an animated webinar. I have a lot of visuals here. They are animated, and I will do my best to uh, picture them for you, but it will not be the same as watching the, the video, and so I do want you to know that. I'm glad that you are listening. I do want you to listen to our podcast, of course, but because this is a webinar, it would be much better if you could view it. All right, so what I'm going to do in this webinar is I'm going to take the word repentance and I'm going to stretch it like a rubber band, and then we're going to zoom in on the different elements of repentance. And the way that I teach it in our ministry, in our mastermind program, the way that we live it out in our family is that there are 13 steps to repentance. Now, maybe you can add or take away that's fine, but this is how we teach it. And I would just encourage you that if you don't have a process of change, that if you're not an active repenter in your marriage, in your family, in your local church, then adopt this teaching here and make it your own. Now, in the beginning, if again, if you're not an active repenter, it will probably be a little bit wooden and maybe a bit awkward. But after a while, you'll become a habitualized repenter and you would do it instinctively and without uh, thinking about it. Because when you think about these 13 steps, it it can seem a little bit daunting initially. But, but trust me, if you practice this, it will just become second nature. And that is exactly what you want. And so let's take repentance, let's stretch it out like a rubber band and look at the those 13 sequential steps. Step number one, sin. 
Now, of course, you know, sin is not something that we like talking about, but there would be no need for repentance if there were no sin, and so we want to deal with this head on. We are fallen people. We have brought our former manner of life into our Christian experience, and because of that, There will be days where we will sin. There will be moments that will not be our best, and so we want to own this. And really, it doesn't have to be discouraging. I mean, the Christian should not be discouraged because of sin, because we are the people who have the ability, because God grants repentance, and he loves us, and he wants us to mature into Christ's likeness. And so sin is not a downer, because we have hope through the power of of the gospel. And so the first step of these 13 is sin. And I only want to make one point. When you talk about your sin, when I talk about mine, let's make sure that we have clear sin categories. And what I mean by that is that we want to name it and claim it accurately because we want to put it off. And if you do not isolate the sin and identify it, knowing exactly what you have done, it will be hard to put off something that's gray or murky or that uh, is not clear. And so we want to be very clear by having proper sin categories. Let me illustrate what I mean by using the one of the most common sins that all of us commit, and that is the sin of anger. You'll remember in James 4, when he talked about anger, he didn't call it anger. He called it murder. He says, what causes quarrels and conflicts? Is it not this? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, that really intensifies anger. He did not round the corners off of it. There's no murkiness or gray area there. It's not ambiguous in his thinking, and that's what we want to do. Our tendency is to dumb it down to water down our sin, to minimize it, to justify it, to even blame it on other people. Well, if we go into any of those routines, there's no way that we could ever repent. And so we really do want to isolate our sin and we want to identify it clearly with sin categories that are unmistakable and it gives us a process to where we can truly and genuinely put it off. And so what we tend to do, for example, with this sin of anger that James that James called murder, we use words that are more innocuous. One of the more common ones is uh, frustrated. I was just frustrated. Frustrated doesn't sound like murder, but James would say frustrated is anger and frustration is murder. Now, I don't care whether you use the word frustration or not, the thing that I care about and the point that I'm making is is that we want to be clear. Regardless of what you call it, you want to make sure that what you're not doing is that you're rounding the corners off of your sin and dumbing it down. Let me give you just a a short list of some of the ways that we modify anger by taking the sting out of it. And maybe we're not even aware that some of these things that I'm going to mention here fall within the category of murder, as James called it, or fall within the category of anger. So here's a a few terms. And again, it, it matters not if you use these terms as long as you know what you're doing. And so there's gossip and dismissiveness, stubbornness, bitterness, defensiveness, criticalness, cynicism, impatience, negativity, condemnation, huffing under your breath, slander, apathy, rolling of the eyes, and even passivity. Passivity is a form of anger. It is not modeling the two great commandments of actively loving God and loving others. The gospel is not passive. God is not passive. We want to engage others. And anger 
falls within the love-hate spectrum. And so either we're loving people or we are hating them, and anger, of course, would fall on the hate side of the love-hate spectrum. And passivity is a form of anger because it's definitely not love. And so my point here is, is that we want to have very clear sin categories. Regardless of the word that you use to describe what you're doing, you want to make sure that you are motivated to change, to repent. We don't want to use non- or sub-biblical language if it's rounding the corners off. And so we can ask ourselves, what did I say? What did I do? What does it mean? And as we think about our words and actions, we want to move them from an, an innocuous way of describing ourselves to biblical language. And the hope is, as we move toward biblical language and have solid sin categories, that we would want to develop a sin plan. And that's what this entire webinar is about. This webinar is a sin plan plan, the doctrine of repentance. And so I want to walk through all 13 steps. The first one is sin, and we want to start out correctly. And so having clear sin categories is vital if we're going to be active repenters among our family and our friends. And so point number one is sin. Step number two is guilt. Now, guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a declaration by God. We live under a no more condemnation worldview. This is how we relate to God. However, there are times in our lives when we cross the line, which is what the word transgression means. And so when we transgress God's word, then we move from being not guilty to being guilty. And again, it's not a feeling, it's just a declaration. There are many people in our world who are guilty and they don't feel it. They're not even aware of it, but they are guilty. You'll read some of that in John chapter 3, verse number 36. And so step number two, when you sin, you are guilty and it's a declaration, not a feeling. And then step number three is conviction. Now, conviction is the sweet mercy of the Holy Spirit moving into our hearts and minds and letting us know that he is grieved or we are quenching him. And this is a feeling. It is an alarm that goes off in our souls. And so we sin. God declares us guilty. And then we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And conviction is a good thing because when God convicts us, our response is we want to agree with him and we want to step into that where he declares us not guilty and we want to accept that. And we want to reject any feelings of conviction after we accept God's forgiveness. Now, I realize that there are some people uh, when they sin and they agree with God that they have sinned and, and they accept his forgiveness, but they still have feelings of conviction that continue to linger in their souls. Now, some people call this true and false guilt, and, and that is fine, but it is a ongoing feeling that they cannot shake even after they have confessed that sin to God. And I bring this up because it is real for some people. They do not understand practically what repentance is and the lingering effects of their actions continue to haunt them days and weeks and even years after they committed them, even though they have asked God to forgive them. Now, I'm not going to talk so much about true and false conviction or, or true and false guilt in this webinar, but I do want you to know that I have a one-hour webinar on our website called True and False Guilt, and you are welcome to watch that if you, if you struggle with this idea of the lingering effects of your actions, even though you have asked God to forgive you. And so step number one is sin. 
Step number two is, well, you're declared guilty. Step number three is the sweet Holy Spirit is being quenched and grieved, and you sense that because you're in the body of Christ, and you are a child of God, and so now you realize that you have done wrong, and you want to respond through repentance. But the question is, what if a person doesn't sense any conviction for what they have done wrong? And that is a legitimate question. And so I want to respond by that uh, to that by laying out several possibilities of what is going on with an individual who feels no conviction for what they have done wrong. They have truly transgressed God's word, and they feel no conviction. Perhaps you know someone like this, and you're looking at their lives, and it's like, that is wrong. You're living wrong, but you have no conviction. And so here are some of the possibilities of what might be going on with that individual who feels no conviction. One of the things could be is that they are not a Christian. You see, unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins, as you read in Ephesians 2. And so the dead person is not going to feel anything. Now, I am not suggesting that your friend is not a believer, but I am suggesting that that could be a possibility if they feel no conviction for what they have done wrong. Another possibility is that they could have weak sin categories. And this is what I was talking about at point number one, about sin. We want to be clear with what we're doing. We have dumbed down our language in some ways to such points that we don't even realize that we are sinning now. We are in a culture that calls good evil and evil good. We are in a sexually confused culture. We now have hundreds of of genders, and our language is in a mess. And so I don't want to be the word police with anyone, but this is a thing. And if some person their, their sin categories is so weak that maybe they don't experience conviction, and, and we want to walk them through what the Bible says about what they're doing. We want to do that courageously and compassionately because maybe they're truly operating in biblical ignorance. And so uh, one of the reasons that they would not experience conviction Number one, I mentioned they're not a Christian. Number two, they have weak sin categories. Number three, it could be that they are afraid to repent. And that's a thing that there are people who don't want others to know what's going on in their lives. And so they don't tell anyone. They keep it secret. They keep their sin secret. And fear of man is a big deal. Sometimes we can be overly managed by what other people think about us or what we think other people think about us. Now, if you're interested in watching another webinar, I have I have one devoted to this subject here exclusively, The Fear of Man. It is a one-hour webinar, and you're welcome to watch it, watch it on our website. People who struggle with the fear of man, in this case, I'm talking about they are afraid to repent because they don't want others to know what's going on. Perhaps that webinar would serve you well. And then a fourth possibility of not feeling or sensing conviction is that they don't know how to repent. They just don't know how to do it. And of course, this webinar will help with that. And then you could have the possibility, here's a fifth reason for a lack of conviction, is I just don't care if I sin. I just don't care. And that is their attitude. And that is a, that is a, a bad place to be. I, I call this the conscience effect. The conscience effect is when your inner voice is so dull that you're not responding to the Lord's conviction, and it is possible to harden our hearts in such a way that we do not sense God's conviction any longer. We have desensitized ourselves to the Lord's conviction. We see that in 1 Timothy 4.2 where their consciences were hardened. They were seared by a hot iron. And we learn in that passage and we also learn in 1 Corinthians 8 that our conscience is moldable. It is shapeable. And the, the, place, the, the uh, place where we want our conscience to be 
is we want it to be bibliocentric. If your inner voice and God's word are singing the same song, if they are in tune, that is the perfect place for your inner voice or your conscience to be. But it is possible for our consciences to become dull as we read in Hebrews 3, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And as we continue to dull our conscience by minimizing what we have done by having weak sin categories, for example, it can become hard to where we're truly desensitized, and that is not the position that any Christian wants to be. We actually want to say something like this. Let me share a quote with you uh, that will help reframe where the Christian heart should be, where my heart should be, and, and I trust yours too. Quote, I want to repent in response to the Spirit's work in me as he shows me my sin and reminds me of the power of forgiveness through Christ's gospel work. That is the heart attitude that we want to emulate. I'm talking about the doctrine of repentance. Step number one is sin. Number two, God declares us guilty. Number three, we begin experiencing the sweet conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then number four is confession. The word confession means to agree. And so you could say, I agree or I confess, and you're saying the same things. I agree with God that I have sinned. That is a, that, that's what confession means. Now, you could also add, I agree with others. Now, here's the condition, if I have sinned against them. And I'll speak to that in just a moment. But this agreement, this confession that you are making to God, it is between you and God using his word as the transcendent moral authority for right and wrong. And it's important that we understand that the agreement is conditioned on the transcendent moral authority, which is God's word, because you don't want anybody gaslighting you. And what I mean by that, someone telling you that you have sinned when in actuality you have not sinned. And so the only way that we can know that we have sinned is by comparing our words or our actions to the transcendent moral authority, which is God's word. And if God's word says that we have sinned, then we want to make that agreement agreement between ourselves and God. We want to confess it. Now, in the webinar here, I have a visual that I want to show to walk through what this confession looks like visually. And so there's a circle here, and I'll try to paint it for those listening by a podcast. But there's a circle here with a man in it, and I call that the sphere of offense. The sphere of offense is the let's say, the geographical area that you want to determine to see who all you have sinned against. That is the sphere of offense. And so you want to know how many people have you offended. And then you want to draw the sphere of confession. Now, the sphere of confession and the sphere of offense are the same size, the same size circle. And so once you identify who you sinned against, then that those are the ones that you want to confess your sin to. And so the sphere of offense and the sphere of, of confession are the same. Now, all sin, every sin without exception, is a sin against God. And so God is always within the sphere of offense, meaning you always confess your sin to God. And it is possible, as I said in the previous slide, that there could be other people within the sphere of offense as well. As you see here in the graphic, there is my wife and one of our children. And let's say that I sinned against the Lord, I sinned against my wife, I sinned against our child. Or you could say it this way I sinned against my wife, which means I sinned against the Lord. And because my child was in the room, I sinned against our child as well. And so that's how it works. And so I have determined what the sphere of offense is. There are three other people within the sphere, 
the Lord, my wife, and our child. Therefore, I need to confess to all three of them. And then you're going to find people outside the sphere of offense. And to say it bluntly, it's none of their business what I have done because I did not sin against them. And so you don't blather your sin on the internet. You don't tell people your sin who are not within the sphere of offense. Now, let me add a caveat here because it is possible that you would want to share your sin with people that you have not offended. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. For example, let's say that you need to see a counselor. Let's say that you want to talk to your mentor and you want to bring your mentor into the process and say, hey, this is a a pattern that I have uh, with my wife. I keep sinning against her and and now my child was within earshot the other day and and they're part of the process now and I didn't sin against you. Now, you wouldn't say it this way, but just for the illustrations, I didn't sin against you, but I want to bring you into the process and I want to share my offense with you and what I'm doing wrong. That would be an illustration uh, of it. Of course, uh, if you're, let's say that you're struggling with something just between you and the Lord, uh, this is just between you and the Lord, and you're not sinning against anyone else, but you want to talk to your spouse about it because you want their help, and so you solicit their help and say, hey, would you help me work through that? That is completely appropriate. Here's a third illustration that you're teaching a a Bible study or a Sunday school class and you want to illustrate a point and so you share a, a sin that you committed and how you walk through it because you want to help them, teach them how to walk through repentance and use your life, your life story. You didn't offend them, you didn't sin against them, but you're using your story as a way of illustrating. Those three illustrations that I just gave you are appropriate But the big idea here, as far as confession is concerned, you only confess your sin to those with whom, uh, who are within the sphere of the offense. And so that is confession. And now point number five, I am calling pre-forgiveness. And I think many people would anticipate that I would have point number five as forgiveness. But what I have done here with forgiveness is I have I have broken it into three parts, pre-forgiveness, forgiveness, and post-forgiveness. And I will walk through all three of these, but because of my counseling experience, and this is how I came up with these 13 steps anyway, from counseling folks over the past couple of decades, I began to put together or begin to see, rather, holes within their processes of change. And as I began to think about this, this idea of repentance and walking various uh, family members and couples and individuals through repentance and seeing these holes and just putting pieces together, that's how I came up with these 13 steps. And when I got down to the forgiveness piece, I began to realize that forgiveness is much bigger than how it's normally taught. And so I broke forgiveness up into three parts. And the first part is pre-forgiveness, which is point number five in the 13 steps that we teach. Pre-forgiveness, you may have heard the word attitudinal. That is a good way to talk about what pre-forgiveness is. It is attitudinal forgiveness. And what I mean by attitudinal forgiveness or pre-forgiveness, it is preparing your heart for transactional forgiveness. It is preparing your heart for the opportunity that lies before you to be able to forgive someone who is asking. You see, pre-forgiveness here or attitudinal forgiveness is not taught. I'm not talking about the offender. I'm not talking about the sinner, the one who transgressed the law. You see, repentance in a relational construct is an active process, not a passive process, that requires at least two participants. If you go back to the previous slide about the sphere of offense and the sphere of confession, there were multiple participants within that sphere, not just the offender, meaning that there is a responsibility on the offended to react the, the right way 
to the offender. You see, this idea of repentance is a it is a cooperative effort, and if you really want to walk out repentance, then everybody on stage, all the actors, everyone that was part of the process has a role to play. And if you are the offended, if you are the victim, if you're the one that was sinned against, then you have work to do because when that offender comes to you and asks you for forgiveness, you want to make sure that you have a heart of forgiveness that is ready to forgive that person. What you don't want to do is just tick the box and say, I forgive you and move on when in reality you're harboring things that you have not worked through. There's conversations that need to be had. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. In Genesis 50:20, there is this reconciling moment between Joseph and his brothers. His brothers sinned mightily against him. And Joseph had worked through all of that, and you sense it, you feel it in the passage that Joseph had no attitude, no sinful attitude toward his brothers, but he had a heart of forgiveness, and he wanted to reconcile, and he had worked through all the disappointment. Now, I don't know how long it took him to work through it, he had a lot to overcome, a lot to think about, a lot to process with the Lord. But when he got to that juncture in the narrative and there was time for repentance to take place, Joseph did not hold up the process. He had a heart attitude that was ready to receive the request of forgiveness from his brothers, and that is where we all want to be. For those of us who are on the offended end of the offenders, we want to make sure we do the right heart work, that we have an attitude that's ready to receive them so when they ask for forgiveness, we can transact it with a pure heart, and this this sin event can truly be dead. And so that is pre-forgiveness, and that's just one illustration of it. Let me give you another illustration of pre-forgiveness, attitudinal forgiveness, when you need it. For example, when the offender is no longer living, when there will never be transactional forgiveness. The offender is dead. They will never ask you to forgive them for what they did to you, but you don't want to be incarcerated by what they did to you. You don't want to be held captive by their actions because they're dead and they can't clean up their mess by coming to you and asking for forgiveness. My father would be one of those individuals. He died in 1978. I became a Christian in 1984. There is no way we could have transacted forgiveness because neither one of us were believers. And then after God regenerated me six years later, I began to work through what he did to me. But we could not transact forgiveness because he was long gone. But I did not want to be captured by what he did to me, and so I had to do some work in my heart to have an attitude of forgiveness, knowing that he would never come and ask for forgiveness, because I did not want to be bound by his actions. And you will meet on occasion a lot of bitter people who have been victimized by the sins of others, and because they could not come to the place of attitudinally forgiving the offenders, they continue to be held captured, captive by what happened, and they are bitter people. Now, attitudinal forgiveness is not releasing them from what they did, but it releases you from what they did. And so pre-forgiveness or attitudinal forgiveness, illustration one is preparing your heart for transactional forgiveness. So when the brothers come and ask for forgiveness, you're ready to grant it. Number two, attitudinal forgiveness is when the offender is no longer living, you want to be free. And then number three, when the offender is unwilling to repent. They don't want to repent. They're not going to repent. And in a similar situation with the person who has passed away, 
You don't want to be held captive. And so you work through the problem attitudinally, even though they can never be right with you or God because they're not asking for transactional forgiveness. And then number four, when it's not possible or it's not wise to pursue forgiveness, and this would be in a situation like sexual abuse, where, excuse me, where you would not send the victim of the abuse into the room to work out what happened with the perpetrator of the sin crime. You would not do that. That would be ungracious and unkind. But you do want to help the victim of the abuse to overcome it attitudinally, and then you can work with the person who did it in another way so that they can live in forgiveness if they're truly seeking it. But there are situations to where the victim is not put with uh, the perpetrator of of the crime because it's just not the right thing to do, but you want to help them attitudinally. And then a fifth illustration of pre-forgiveness or attitudinal forgiveness is when you can overlook the offense. You're not asking them to transact. You're overlooking this. Parents do this all the time because you don't want to nickel and dime your children. I mean, you could you could talk to your children about repenting probably every five minutes of the day when they are young, but you have a bigger aim. You have a higher goal in mind with this individual, and so you're going to overlook this offense because you're, you're playing the long game with them. And so these are some of the conditions of attitudinal forgiveness, and it is essential Uh, that the offended in all these cases get to that place because uh, in order to work through repentance and the effects of what the sin caused, everybody needs to be free and clear. The doctrine of repentance, there's 13 steps. Number one is sin. Number two is guilt. Number three is conviction. Number four is confession. Number five is pre-forgiveness or attitudinal forgiveness. And then number six is forgiveness. Now, I want to go back to the slide that I showed earlier with the man in the circle with his wife and his child, and the Lord is also in that circle. That was the sphere of offense. And I talked about how the sphere of offense and the sphere of confession are the same. Well, you can add one more circle to this as well, and that circle is the same in diameter, and that is the sphere of forgiveness. And so here's the rule of thumb. The sphere of offense, the sphere of confession, and the sphere of forgiveness are the same. Now, when I talk about forgiveness, I'm talking about active forgiveness. I was speaking to this earlier that, you know, passivity, I was talking about passivity. There's no place for passivity when it comes to repentance. We all are participating, the offender and the offended. And I talked at length about pre-forgiveness for the one who is offended. Now I want to talk about the offender, and this offender must be an active repenter. And so there must be active forgiveness. And so the offense, the confession, the forgiveness fears are the same. Point number two, forgiveness is not an apology. It is ironic, the word apology and in Christian theology means apologeo, apologetics, to give a defense. I do find that a bit ironic. Now, it doesn't matter to me if you apologize. It doesn't matter to me if you say, I'm sorry, as long as you are transacting forgiveness. You see, the words I'm sorry doesn't require a response. Let's say that I bump into you and say, oh, man, I, I'm sorry. And, and they're really not in a requirement for a response. Or sometimes the response is something like, oh, that's okay. It's not a problem. That's where I'm sorry can get you, and that's not where you want to go when we are talking about forgiveness. You want to take that person and say, no, it's not all right, and it is a problem. My sin put Christ on the cross. Christ died for my sin. No, we need to do more here than just apologize. We need to do more here than just to say, I'm sorry. I need for you to forgive me. And when you ask for forgiveness, active forgiveness, you do it with specificity. 
This gets back to the sin categories that I was talking about earlier. You want to be very clear about what you did when you ask for forgiveness. The way that I like to talk about it is that forgiveness is an act of personal prosecution. Let me show you a slide here, and I'll try to recreate it for those who are listening by audio. What we have here is a courtroom, uh, or the the courthouse, rather, and the steps outside the courthouse, and there's a man standing on the steps, and then we have this large gavel, just exponential, way out of proportion, this huge gavel. And then there's another man under the gavel. And so one man is about ready to bring the gavel down on the other man. Both of these men are the same people. And so forgiveness and asking for forgiveness is an act of personal prosecution where I am the prosecuting attorney. And I am bringing a strong case against myself. I am bringing the gavel down on myself because I want to make my case so clear that you really have no other option but to forgive me. Perhaps you've had the situation where someone has come to you and they've asked you for forgiveness and you're, you're listening to them and you're wondering, like, I don't think they know what they did. I don't think they understand how much they hurt me. This happens in marriages all the time. And that's where you want to have clear sin categories. That's why you don't want to apologize. That's why you don't want to say, I'm sorry. You want to ask for forgiveness, and you want to be so clear. You want them to know that you know in the most explicit ways what you did and how you hurt them. You want to make it easy for them to say, I forgive you. Because what can happen in some situations is that the person could just tick the box and they could just say, I forgive you. But they go away thinking, you know, I don't think they understand. I don't think they know. I think we need to talk about this a little bit more. But if you make your sin and the act of asking for forgiveness as though you're prosecuting yourself, it relieves the other person of the burden, and it makes it easier for them to step into that transactional moment and to say, I forgive you. And so what the repentant Christian is doing is that they are essentially giving up all of their rights, giving up all of their power, giving up all of their vitality to the offended party. And they will not be made whole until the offended party says, I forgive you. You want to make it that real. And then point number seven is post-forgiveness. Post-forgiveness is when the sin is roadkill, It's dead. The sin has been neutralized by the power of the gospel. Two people can walk around it and and kick it. It's roadkill. And it's not going to animate like a dog and jump up and bark at you because the sin is truly dead because you've worked through the process of killing it by the power of the gospel. And what you see on the screen here, these first seven steps, really has doesn't have much to do with with uh, walking out repentance as far as putting on a new life these first seven steps is the killing of the sin because what happens is that we can do a poor job in killing the sin and then we try to live a Christ-like life which is the rest of this process and we don't do it because the sin still has life And so the first seven steps are sin, guilt, conviction, confession, pre-forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness, and post-forgiveness. And post-forgiveness, you could say it like this. My sin is neutralized by the power of the gospel. I can now start changing and work on my relationships. And that brings us to point number eight, which is reconciliation. Now, a good way to illustrate reconciliation is, let's say two people were standing face to face and there was a soccer ball that was between them, chest to chest, and you were holding the ball up with each other's chest. 
the, the soccer ball is sin. Now, if you killed it dead, not only does the air go out of the soccer ball, but it just disappears, and there is absolutely nothing between you. That is reconciliation. And you'll know it. You'll feel it. If you're truly reconciled, if you've done the hard work of the first seven steps, you can reconcile. Now, reconcile is not restoration, which is the next point. Point number uh, nine is restoration. You see, you can reconcile with someone, and that be the end of the relationship. It doesn't mean that you're going to be best buddies. It, it doesn't mean that you're going to hang out thereafter. But you do want to reconcile. You, don't, you want to remove the thing that is between you. But then point number nine here is restoration, and this is when two people do want to continue on in their relationship. It's when two former adversaries go beyond reconciling. They go beyond removing the soccer ball. Now, this would be like in the situation of a husband and wife. Well, obviously, you want to go beyond reconciling. You want to step into a restoration process. I'm talking about Galatians 6.1 where Paul says, if anyone transgresses, you restore them. That's what restoration is. And so the spouse would want to come alongside and help with the restoration of the offending spouse. And actually, the one who is offended, the one who is sinned against, has skin in the game. They want to help in the restoration process because they don't want to be sinned against continually. And so restoration can have several meanings or several iterations. The one I just mentioned is when two former adversaries go beyond reconciling, and now they're working together, restoring this person so that the pattern the pattern of sin doesn't start, or if there is a pattern of sin, uh, they can help to stop it so it will go away. Another aspect of reconciliation is when the repentant person wants to restore damages. Maybe there was something that needs to be restored. You got drunk and knocked the mailbox down or whatever it, whatever it was. Or you're being irresponsible and broke a glass out of a window with a baseball, whatever, and you want to restore. So you reconcile. Please forgive me for my irresponsibility. Please forgive me for sinning against you. Now I want to take care of the damages. That's another aspect of restoration. And then there's a third aspect is when the repentant wants to bless the offended. I'm not restoring damages. I just, I just want to give you more than you ask or think because that's an aspect of the gospel. God reconciles with us, and then he just pours out a blessing upon blessing upon us because he loves us. And sometimes a repentant person may want to do that. They're not paying for their sin, No, the gospel takes care of the sin, but they just want to bless. And so here are three possibilities for restoration, but I want to go back to point number one of restoration when two former adversaries go beyond reconciling. And so now the offended can come alongside the offender and help them to do what Paul said in Galatians 6, 1, to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And this leads to point number 10 in the 13 steps, which is Paul's template in Ephesians 4, verses 22, 23, 24, put off the old person. I'm going to show it to you on the screen here, and I'll read the text to you, though I know that you're familiar with it. There are three aspects, and this is point 10, 11, and 12 of the repentance process. Here it is, Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed, that would be point number 11, in the spirit of your minds, and to put on, that's point number 12, the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, points 10, 11, and 12, put off the sin, renew your mind, and then put on the new self that's made after Christ's righteous, true, true righteousness and holiness. And so putting off your former manner of life as you delve into the shaping influences and some of the things that 
are incorporated in the sin that you committed. You want to identify those things. I've talked a lot about that with sin categories, for example. You want to work through the process of killing it, which is the first seven steps of this repentant process. And then you want to go beyond that because you want to renew the spirit of your mind. Because we know, I mean, putting off could be some behavioral modifying things, and that's good, and, and that's right. You know, Jesus talked about that in Matthew five twenty nine and following, about plucking out the eye and cutting off the hand, using hyperbolic language to talk about behavioral modification. And there may be some things that you need to behaviorally modify, but you also know that sin doesn't start on uh, at the level of fruit. It doesn't start on the limbs, it starts at the root, and so uh, all of our sin issues begin in our heart. Therefore, what you must do is you must identify and isolate and remove the sinful ruling motives of the heart. You gotta cut it out at root source. Now, both of these actions are appropriate. Behavioral modification, that could be that could be life-saving to cut some of these things out of your life behaviorally, but you know they're going to grow back, and that's why it's essential to identify, isolate, and remove the sinful ruling motives of the heart. Now, I won't go too deep in this in this webinar because I have another webinar called How to Identify the Ruling Motives of the Heart. It is a one-hour webinar, and you're welcome to watch that, and it will take you into a deep dive into mind renewal, and I would encourage you to add that webinar to this one and to watch it at your convenience so that you can do the deep heart work that's necessary to root out any habits, patterns, or episodes of sin that are in your life. And then point number 12 is you want to put on new ways. And so you want to go from that bad self to the new self, and the new self is a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the ways that I want to talk about putting on a new person is I want to take this verse that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and this is what he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. People who come to me who are in trouble, uh, they have sin patterns in their lives, they're, they're caught in, in various sin traps. If you be, as you begin to take an inventory or stock of their lives, what you will see is that they have bad companions. There will be a number of bad tributaries that flow into their lives that help them, that assist them to get to the place where they are. And so I want to take this verse in 1533 of 1 Corinthians, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals, and I want to flip it around by implication and say that good companions improve morals. And so as you walk a person through putting on a new person, you want to do the complete work, not just renewing the mind, which absolutely is essential, but you want to do behavioral modification again. You, you want to give them some good companions. And when I talk about good companions, I'm not exclusively talking about individuals, even though that is true. But good companions can be many things. Let me give you a list of some very good companions. And as you listen to this list, uh, I, I want you to discern that if you find a person that is really engaging all of these companions or all of these companions are engaging them, this person is probably in a very good place uh, because there is a, there's a truth to the fact that, that who we associate with and the things that we allow to enter into our minds, they do affect us. And as I said earlier, that when you find people in trouble, what you inevitably find are bad companions. And so you want to make sure you do the complete work. And in this aspect of putting on, I'm talking about adding good companions, surrounding this person with good companions. Here's a list. It's not exhaustive. You can screenshot this if you wish, but I want to share with you that there's two, four, six, eight, ten, ten companions. Number one, engaging prayer, obviously spending time in prayer. And that's one of the things that you will find is a deficit in a person's life who is not walking with the Lord or they're caught in, in these 
traps and they're not walking out uh, biblical repentance. And so engaging prayer, prayer is an excellent companion. And I say engaging prayer because it's like repentance. It's active repentance. And so we want to be actively repay, uh, praying. We want to be all in as we pray. Bible study is essential, laying the theological substructure to our lives, learning the Bible and growing in it. Number three, memorization. Well, you can hear David saying that I hid your word in my heart so I won't sin against you. Well, memorization is absolutely essential. Uh, you can't overstate that, I don't think. Number four, singing. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, songs that lyrically they are Christocentric. Uh, there are songs that uh, really exalt Christ, and that's what's needed here, that Christ is lifted high and lifted up, and that we, we see him, that we, we have this gospel-centered, cross-centered view of Christ that comes through in our songs. Uh, number five, church meetings. Uh, the church has all sorts of meetings, the corporate meeting on Sunday morning, men's meetings, women's meetings, youth meetings, uh, all kinds of meetings. I mean, even going out and, and doing a landscaping day uh, at the church meeting, the, the church people meeting around the building to do landscaping and, and also camping out and backyard barbecues. I mean, there's many ways of meeting with the church, that, and, and many of these meetings have nothing to do with the building, and so the church is the body, not the building. Also, number six, find your Paul. Uh, every every Timothy needs a Paul, or every Timothea needs a Paulette. Uh, for if you're a female, build friendships, make disciples, serve your community, and of course evangelism. And you can work through this list, and you could probably run them down a, a sheet of paper, and then just write out beside each one uh, some action items and ways ways to respond. And so, put on new ways uh, is point number twelve, and then number thirteen, go and make disciples. Now. As you look at these 13 steps here, you see that step number one is sin, and step number 13 is go and make disciples. They are antithetical. One is the sin-centered, self-centered, I'm going to do what I want. The last one, step 13, going and make disciples, is the selfless, other-centered, I want to love God and others more than myself. And that is the attitude that you want. You will know when a person has gone from, when, when they truly have acted out repentance, they're not the Dead Sea where they have just stopped doing something, the sin, but they go beyond that. They go to now, they're pouring their lives into other people. And so being other-centered, and this is what I've told counselees for years, the end of the counseling process is not the stoppage of the sin. The end of the counseling process is when you go out and start counseling others, or to put it within a biblical framework, when you go out and start making disciples, that is how you overcome. It's not just the stoppage of sin. And then what you're going to find is Christian maturity, and that is the goal. And so this is the doctrine of repentance. These are the 13 steps, the way that we teach it. Thank you so much for watching the webinar. For those who have listened by podcast, please let us know how we can serve you further. It would be our joy to do so. The title of the webinar, The Doctrine of Repentance, The Christian's Secret Weapon. If you have come this far with me in this webinar, then I do want to make one final appeal. What you have just watched here is free, and by the grace of God, we will always keep our resources free because we want to reach the world with the practical message of Jesus Christ. If you have benefited from this webinar or perhaps other resources from our ministry, and if you're in a place to where you can support us, my appeal is for you to pray about that and ask God how you can support us financially. These resources aren't free. These resources cost a lot of money, and we have a, a, a pretty substantial team that we pay, and we have a lot of peripherals that we have to pay monthly and annually to keep our ministry going. And so there's a lot of, there's a financial burden here, but we uh, we decided that we were going to trust the Lord and, and the goodness of people's hearts, and we're just going to put it out there and, and let people uh, benefit from these resources and share them and use them in their individually and in their families and their churches uh, so that other people can 
benefit from the practical message of Christ as we teach it through this ministry, but we are dependent upon you. If you are a local church and you're able to support us monthly or annually, uh, please consider that. Please support us. We are a missional ministry. We are global as we are impacting lives globally, and so you can partner with us. And In fact, I would encourage you to go to the testimony page of our website and just read it's an incredibly long list of testimonies that have come in from around the world from people who have benefited. And so if you are a local church, uh, if you are a business person of substance and you can invest in our ministry, I would appeal to you to do that. If you can make a $5, $10 monthly gift or an annual gift, uh, please go to our website and click the donate link and, and it'll walk you through uh, what you can do. Uh, you're also welcome to call our uh, ministry, and we'll be glad to talk with you about any questions you have about uh, financial support. But if you can partner with us, this is not a, a guilt-motivated message that I'm sharing with you, but it is essential because I want you to know. So thank you so much for watching uh, the webinar, and uh, please share this with others, and please let us know how we can serve you. God bless. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.